Okay, just setting up everything here. Hi, everyone. It's Thursday at 5 p.m. and therefore you are at the bar. I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum. And I'm Jennifer Braceros with Independent Women's Law Center. Today, I'd like to raise a glass as we celebrate our 10th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Yes, I'm being highly disappointing. I'm, I'm actually in the middle of a move. So my, as I was telling Jennifer, before we got on, my bar cart and all attendant uh, boozes has been rolled to our other apartment already. So um, all I had was this, this Coke can. So I'm just going to have to be disappointing uh, this happy hour. But we had talked um, about maybe doing an at the bar on the legal uh, efforts to force women to register for the draft. There was that Senate committee vote about making women register for the selective service. So we were going to talk about that, but then we saw that, um, you know, the Olympics obviously just wrapped up. And so we decided to switch gears um, for this show and talk about a legal issue that has been uh, covered a lot with regard specifically to the women's soccer team, um, whether it's to their um, the Olympic performance or uh, their their other performances in, in um, the, the uh, various leagues in which they participate. There's a domestic one, and I'm not a soccer fan. So there's a domestic one and a, a world one, and then there's the Olympics. But what we would like to talk about is the claim by Megan Rapinoe and her soccer teammate soccer teammates that the United States Soccer Federation actually pays them uh, less because they are women in, in comparison to the men's team. Essentially, what they're doing is um, launching an equal pay claim, both in the courts and in the court of public opinion. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and this case is super interesting to me, Inez, for so many reasons, because really, Megan Rapinoe, or Rapinoe, however, I'm not really quite sure how you pronounce it, but I'm going to go with Rapinoe. Um, she and her teammates have really been fighting and winning this battle in the court of public opinion. Uh, most people just sort of assume that the female soccer players have been discriminated against, sort of an article of faith in the Twitterverse. Um, people assume they've been paid less than the male uh, soccer players. But in fact, a federal court held over a year ago um, that they were not paid less than the men. In fact, they were paid more than the men. And um, the federal judge dismissed uh, the pay discrimination portion of their case, which is now on appeal. Yeah, and we're going to get into like all the different ways that you could measure their pay because this turns out to not be a cut and dried um, because they, they get paid in a variety of different ways um, that are different from the men's team. Um, However, uh, what we also want to start off with is the kind of public pressure around this case that the um, sort of celebrities and politicians weighing in on this case. And it seems largely like the assumption is uh, because they're female, they are somehow being underpaid in some way. People aren't really, um, you know, obviously it's Twitter. Nobody is, is going into the details of the contracts of these two teams and the law involved. Um, but what they are doing is kind of putting forward that blanket assertion that somehow um, this is emblematic of how women are underpaid in the United States. So I'm going to throw up a couple of those tweets. So uh, we have AOC here. At this point, we shouldn't even be asking for equal pay. We should demand they should be paid at least twice as much. Oh, well, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> we've, we've got Shonda Rhimes here. These athletes generate more revenue and garner higher TV ratings, but are paid less simply because they are women. It's time for the Federation to connect, uh, correct this disparity once and for all. And then finally, we've got the president weighing in here, Joe Biden. Um, don't give up this fight. It's not over yet. 
um, to U.S. soccer, equal pay now, or else when I'm president, you can go elsewhere for World Cup funding. So we have the then candidate for president, now uh, the president, Joe Biden, threatening the soccer federation um, and saying that basically assuming that they are unfairly paying the women's soccer team. So obviously, the folks tweeting about this know very little. I mean, um, even the politicians involved, it's not like like uh, they're not on, on at the bar, so they're not going to delve into how the, the women's and men's teams are paid. But there is this very overwhelming under, underlying assumption that women generally in the United States are underpaid because they are women. Um, and of course, <laughs> IWF um, and, and the, the legal center, we've been pushing back against this assumption because it is so damaging, even though it's so widely spread. Famously, President Obama um, was constantly quoting this, this um, 79 cents on the dollar statistic that was blown out of the water by a review um, by his own labor department that produced, uh, actually produced a mega data um, sort of survey of, of all kinds of studies that have been conducted on female pay. And it turns out that when you account for all kinds of factors, which we'll get into, that pay gap narrows all the way down to a cent or two. And even that cannot really be attributed to discrimination. So Obama's own labor department debunked the statistic that he continued to use after they released that report. And I really see this whole debate over the, the soccer team pay um, being emblematic of how much misinformation and myth-making there has been around this issue more generally. Yeah, it's true because most people don't realize that, that equal pay laws have been on the books in this country since the 1960s, the early 1960s. The Act, Equal Pay Act was actually one of the first laws passed, um, one of the first civil rights laws passed to protect women. Um, was passed even before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the Equal, the equal Pay Act prohibits pay discrimination outright. Um, Title VII, which was passed the following year in 1964, that prohibits sex discrimination in employment more broadly. And so both laws prohibit employers from paying similarly situated male and female employees differently. Um, but of course, Similarly situated is the key because, you know, obviously, you know, a law firm is going to pay their first year associates the same amount, whether they're male or female. You know, there's not a law firm in the country that doesn't do that now. Um, but then down the road, different factors come into play. Have people taken time off? Have people, um, has one employee been working from home more, the, more than the other? Has one employee taken on more complex cases? Has has one employee, you know, done a better job, right? So at the, at the beginning of an employment relationship, um, oftentimes most people are exactly the same. They come in with very similar credentials, very similar degrees and backgrounds. Um, but as time goes on in a professional workplace, it's very hard often to, to compare uh, employees. Um, you can do it in the unionized context much more easily. Um, but, but that's where a lot of the differences come into play. And as you know, Inez, when, when you do crunch the numbers and actually compare apples to apples, what you see is actually the pay gap shrinks to about two cents on the dollar. So there is a small pay gap, um, but most of the pay gap goes away when you look, when you compare uh, levels of education, um, you know, hours put in on the job, 
all sorts of things. And so when you when you crunch those numbers, as, as you pointed out, the Obama Labor Department did, uh, the pay gap pretty much disappears uh, in almost in almost all cases. That's right. Um, and my, my favorite counterexample to the narrative here is is really Uber, um, which which is just there was this fascinating experiment that they ran because, of course, Uber actually pays by algorithm. So it's not it takes out a lot of that subjectivity that you were referencing in terms of promoting one person over another. Um, it literally has a formula that does not obviously take into account the sex of the driver. So um, it turns out that Uber has a 7% pay gap between its female and male drivers. Um, and, and they released a report saying that that was largely due to speed of driving, um, <laughs> hours, what hours uh, the driver worked because it was controlled for hours, right? Because um, it pays by the hour. So number of hours worked wasn't necessarily a factor, but like what what hours worked was mm -hmm. because Uber pays more for certain inconvenient hours where it may not be fun um, or convenient to, to, to actually go on the job. Certain times. Right. So um, it, it was just a, a great live time experiment that shows that the differences between men and women and, and the, the different decisions they actually make about their careers produce this kind of pay gap, even when the, um, the, the way that employees are paid, or in this case, not employees, because Uber has contractors and that's a whole, whole other issue. Mm -hmm. um, but even the way that drivers are paid is completely by algorithm. You still see right. these disparities that are then attributed to discrimination and so on. But it's just, this is such a frustrating topic to me because I feel like, you know, I know the left loves to say like the science, the science says, right? Um, but in this case, the science is in. Um, yeah, the data is in. The data is in. There's also another study similar to the one you just described about Uber. There's a study out of Harvard Business School where they looked at unionized employees who work in the Boston transportation sector. So I guess bus drivers and, and you know, uh, T operators and stuff like that. Um, and so those are unionized employees. And so those employees are all paid exactly the same depending on when they join the union. Um, it's all about tenure in a union. And even there, the women, um, there's a pay gap and the women end up taking home less than men. What Harvard Business School found the that the reason behind that is because the men are willing to take on overtime, whereas the women on average tend to reject overtime hours because they want to get home to their families. So again, that's a choice. Their take-home pay, their, their rate of pay is the same. Their take-home pay ends up being less because they're working fewer overtime hours. Yeah, I mean, this this really, um, like I said, this issue really frustrates me, not just because of the seeming imperviousness uh, to the facts of right. the entire discussion, um, but also because the assumption of the discussion is that there's a disparity in pay over these huge averages, um, that there's essentially either discrimination or when you do introduce the fact that these confounding factors and different behavior um, does, does introduce the pay gap at the like aggregate level between men and women, the assumption is that like, I know this is the opposite of how they present it, but really what they're saying is there's something wrong with the decisions that women are making, right? If, if women are not making the same decisions as men are about balancing their careers and homes and families, um, the, then there's something wrong with a system or right. there's something wrong with women who are making those choices. They're making the wrong choices because the standard to which um, women's performance essentially in decision-making is pegged is the male 
choices. And and who's to say like who's making better decisions here? I mean, um, there there aren't a lot of people on their deathbed uh, who who regret not working more hours, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I, it just bothers me the way this whole well, issue. And, is and also the, the left wants um, the private sector and the public sector to basically compensate for what they view as the systemic sexism of marriages and families, right? Where, you know, it's still the case that, I mean, some there are a lot of men who are stay-at-home dads nowadays, but it's still the case that, you know, it's the women who are rushing home to pick up the kids from soccer practice, not the men. Um, and so they view that as a societal problem, societal discrimination. And so they, they expect the employers to, to make, you know, make that right, level it out. Um, you know, whether you think it's a systemic problem to begin with is a whole nother question. But even if you agree with them, that this is some sort of societal sexism, is it really the role of the private sector to, to solve that? Right. Of, of course not. But none of this nuance makes it into um, the, the the sort of conversation on this issue, particularly with regard to this women's soccer team. In fact, um, I'm going to roll a trailer here for an entire movie about their battle against systemic sexism um, to, to get themselves paid. So we're going to roll a bit of that. This group is just so bad. We have pink hair, purple hair, tattoos, dreadlocks. White girls, black girls. Yes, we play sports. Yes, we play soccer. But we're so much more than that. We were ready to show the world real talent, real energy, real competitive drive. But the story's the same everywhere. Women get paid less to do the same job. The fight for equal pay has been going on since this team started. The mindset back then was you should just be grateful, darling, that you have a place to play. Even though I'm on the USA team, I have to coach just to make ends meet. Childcare is more than my paychecks. The men's team get more money, more marketing, better fields. We were very frustrated and very angry. It's not fair. The women on the U.S. soccer team are suing the U.S. Soccer Federation for equal pay. USSF does argue some women on the team got more compensation than some of the men did. It's like, really? And then it was like, hold my beer. If we win this World Cup, they would have no choice but to be on our side. That's when I felt the movement. We got the entire world on our side. I want to leave this team better than I found it on and also off the field. This will be one of those landmark decisions talked about for decades. Anything less than winning is a failure. If you want the world to look a certain way, you have to fight to get there. It is time. It is time. It is time. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, I don't know how to hear with her and her pink hair. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the real problem here, right? Like the, the 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 patriarchy hates her pink hair, and that's why she's not getting paid properly. Um, no, I mean, look, they're right about one thing. Uh, they have successfully messaged this issue. They have people on their side, um, and people just assume that they're telling the truth. Jennifer, can you just break down for us? Um, 
first of all, what the judge in this case found. And then second of all, you know, how do the men's and women's contracts differ? Because it's actually quite complicated. Yeah. So unlike, um, you know, some of the other contacts that we've talked about, um, U.S. soccer teams are, are un they're unionized workplaces. So the men's team has a labor union and the women's team has a union and they separately bargain um, with the U.S. Soccer Federation for contracts that determine how they're paid. Um, so in this case, the judge, you know, he, he looked at the expert testimony on both sides and he crunched all the numbers. And what the first thing he found was that overall, um, the men's team as a group gets paid more than the women's team, both, both overall and on a per game basis. Um, and I think we have a little graphic that, that points out the exact numbers, um, it's that timeout graphic with, with okay. the picture of <laughs> our hero, Megan. There's, there it is. So overall, the women's team, um, at the, the time relevant to the lawsuit, took home $24 million compared to the men's team, which took home $18 million. And on a per-game basis, the women collected $220,747, and the men took home $212,639,000. So overall, in fact, the women make more than the men. Um, but what's also important to note about their contracts is that they are structured entirely differently. So the men have a pay-to-play contract. They only get paid when they step foot on the field. Um, they do not get paid uh, if they're on sick leave. They do not get paid if they don't make a tournament and they have to stay home if they're not rostered for a particular tournament. Um, the women get paid a salary and they get paid that salary um, irrespective of whether they play. So for example, during COVID, the women continued to get paid. The men didn't get a dime. Um, so big difference. The women chose stability um, over, you know, the uncertainty of whether or not they'd make, each player would make a roster for a certain tournament. Because just because you're on the team doesn't mean you go to every game. You go to these training camps, and then the coach decides which players he's taking or she's taking to a certain to a certain tournament, and so the men get paid only in bonuses. The women get their salary, and then they get some bonuses based on whether they whether they play, whether they lose, win, or tie. And their complaint is essentially that their bonuses are less than the men's bonuses. And so the judge said essentially, "That's ridiculous. You chose this contract." This is the contract you chose. And as a team, you actually make more. So he, he dismissed the part of their case under the Equal Pay Act and under Title VII where they alleged pay discrimination. What he did not dismiss are their claims of general um, unequal working conditions. And so essentially they argued in their case that they don't get the same travel stipends. They don't get as nice hotels or, or airplanes. Um, they, their locker rooms aren't as good, their, their perks and their swag aren't as good, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Well, all of the miscellaneous things, their training opportunities. And the judge said that on that issue, there was enough evidence to go to trial. 
Um, and the U.S. Soccer Federation very quickly settled that portion of the case because I'm sure there are huge inequities in that stuff. But when it came to pay, the judge said they didn't have a case. Yeah, you know, it's funny. In some ways, this case really is emblematic just in a totally different way than they want it to be, right? Like the way that that HBO movie is set up, the way that this is talked about is, look, even these world champion women are not getting equal pay. And we hear that this issue talked about that um, from that perspective a lot. Um, so the other uh, kind of group of women who are speaking out about this that comes to mind are highly paid actresses, right? So, and they'll say that on a given, um, and that's much more subjective as to, mm -hmm. you know, what the relative value of each character that you're casting in a Hollywood movie like brings to the mm -hmm. table. Um, so there are these women who are saying, well, my male co-star made $17 million and I only made $10 million for the same movie where we had, you know, sort of similar parts or whatever. Um, and and I, I think it's emblematic in the way that it's totally disconnected from how women, ordinary women really like structure their careers. Um, and it's emblematic in the way that actually even these, um, these women who are now complaining about the contract that they negotiated and their union negotiated, guess what uh, they wanted to negotiate at the time? As you said, stability, right? And that's one yeah. of the major things that studies find that women prefer uh, um, more than men do. Men tend to do more shoot for the moon kind of propositions. And that's exactly what we see um, with the men's team. They don't get paid at all if they don't step foot. You know, there's a lot of guys who are, you know, working really hard and then just, you know, not making the team for that tournament and getting paid zero dollars. But when they do step foot on it, there's a higher payoff. We're finding that, you know, in a lot of these studies that men are have a higher risk tolerance than women do. Women right. tend to try to um, to minimize risk. They also maximize flexibility. Um, they maximize for different things other than the highest pay possible, which is why one of the many reasons, among others, like uh, choosing different college majors is a, a huge difference. Um, number right. of years in the workforce is a huge difference. Hours worked even among those who are considered full time. Um, so you can be considered full time. I believe it's at 37 hours a week. Um, might even be 35, but even within there, you see that men who work full-time actually work something closer to 45 hours a week on average, whereas women are just under 40 a week, and these are all full-time employees. Um, these men are men also have a higher risk tolerance for types of occupations. So you don't, for example, see a lot of female coal miners or deep-sea fishermen. I mean, you see some, but the jobs that are most risky to life and limb are still heavily dominated by men because they're, you know, they tend to take on more risk. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing exactly in live time with these women insisting that they want essentially the payout of the high risk gamble that the men took. Um, but they don't want to give up. One presumes um, they don't want to give up the stability part of their contract. They don't want to give up getting paid during COVID when there were no soccer games. They don't right. want to give up the stability um, of getting that that monthly paycheck or biweekly paycheck uh, that they know is going to show up and organizing their lives around that. Um, so in that sense, I really do think it's emblematic. It's, it's um, you know, we have this conversation in a way that doesn't talk about other benefits besides right. the like bottom line highest salary. Right. And it's, it's not just that the men have a pay to play and they have a salary. They have other benefits. They get maternity leaves. They get severance pay if they get cut from the team. The men don't get any of those things. 
And I read somewhere, I may not get my numbers exactly right, but I think the, the men's team roster is approximately 50 guys. And there are only about 13 who play regularly in, in you know, all their tournaments. Everybody else isn't getting paid. I mean, they might go to a few tournaments but or a few matches, but they, they're not getting paid enough to sustain, you know, a yearly salary. Whereas the women, it might not be as much as they want, but they're, they're getting regular paychecks. You know, this really goes back to what I think is a theme, both for the law center and for IW generally, which is, you know, equality between men and women does not have to look like men and women being the same. Um, And in fact, it may be, and in fact, we will argue that it is better for women um, to be recognized as making different decisions because they are women um, and and to go ahead and embrace those decisions that are different than men um, rather than trying to cram, uh, essentially cram women into a a, a, um, system and standard that is created by men um, because men do have different priorities. And we're seeing that even in these two powerful teams, right? They're the best of the world and what they do, um, or at least they, they came, I think, I think in, in third in the Olympics, so they're not anymore. Um, but they're certainly, you know, some of the best in the world at what they do. Um, and, and yet we still see even these kinds of high powered women behaving in a way that the men's team isn't with regard to what they value when they, at least when they negotiated it, instead of what now after the fact where they want to change the game and get essentially both upsides and no downsides. Um, you know, we see them behaving very much like women. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I saw, I saw some people asking on Twitter, you know, well, why would they say they're discriminated against if they're not? I mean, obviously they feel they've been mistreated by, by the U S soccer federation. And, and what I think is interesting about that is I think there are lots of reasons they might make this claim, even knowing that, that when you crunch the numbers, their pay claims aren't valid. One reason is it's a tool for collective bargaining, right? You get all of this negative publicity going against USA, U.S. Soccer Federation, and when they have to come to the table to renegotiate their contract, that puts a lot of pressure on them. So, it, you know, I think it's, I, I do think it's a tool. Also, I think you know, there's something to be said for the fact that in this country, victim status is coin of the realm. Uh, and I, you know, I wrote that in a, in a Boston Herald article about this. These women have been feted by Hollywood. They've been, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, praised by politicians, by AOC, by the president of the United States, by Shonda Rhimes. And they're, you know, they're heroes for fighting for equal pay. There's a value in that to them, a value that they then monetize with endorsements. Um, So there's a lot going on here that that makes this very different from your run of the mill equal equal pay case where, you know, somebody just goes into the office and finds out that their their colleague at the next desk is is being paid more. That's that's not really what this is all about. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on here, I think. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you this, Jennifer, given that your background is in labor law. Um, when you talk about why an employee might bring this kind of case, um, what is the more, like, what are the steps and what is the more typical case if, if a woman was to bring an action underneath um, that that Paycheck Fairness Act or, or um, underneath the, the Equal Pay Act of 1963? I mean, what are the remedies 
available if a woman feels that she is being or suspects that she her pay is being docked in comparison to her male colleagues unfairly? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that if anybody feels that they're being paid unfairly or has evidence to, to show that they're being treated unfairly, they should seek legal counsel and they and they should bring a lawsuit. In most cases, I would imagine that an employer would, would settle that and rectify it very quickly. Employers aren't deliberately trying to pay women less than men. Um, you know, if it's brought to their attention that there's an inequity that that you know, there's no business justification for, I think 95% of all employees would very quickly try to rectify that. Um, so I, I would definitely argue that that women should, or men, if the men are being paid less, um, you know, talk to a lawyer and, 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 and try to get it fixed. Um, the other thing is, you know, I think, I mean, what's interesting is that, that these laws have been really successful. Um, and they're trying to amend them to make it easier to bring lawsuits in a way that's really not necessary at this point. I mean, they, what they want to do is they want to um, some of the, the bills that are pending in Congress, they want to switch the burden of proof, essentially, to the employer. So that if, if there's some sort of an equity, um, statistically speaking, in terms of groups, it's the burden is on the employer to explain why uh, why that's so. and. Um, a lot of the bills also set up really sort of, I think, intrusive monitoring systems that require employers to report pay data to the government every year. And so, of course, what that's going to do is if you have to if you have to submit raw numbers to the Department of Labor um, and it's going to be, you know, bureaucrats are going to be going through it with a fine tooth comb, you're prophylactically, I think, as an employer going to try to make sure that those numbers don't look in any way disparate on the basis of sex, um, even though there might be very real reasons why those disparities exist, such as number of hours worked or or whatever, um, or specific types of jobs within the company. Um, so employers will, in the first instance, try to even everything out. Um, now, some people might say, well, that's good. They should even everything out. Everybody should just get paid the same. But what that what that takes away from employees and and women in particular is the ability to negotiate any sort of flexible arrangement or any sort of individual arrangement that that suits, you know, her needs. Um, you know, it, it takes away the ability to say, "Gee, I'd like to work from home three days a week." The, you know, the answer from the employer is immediately going to be, I, "I can't do that for you if I don't do it for everybody else. I have to pay you the exact same, and you have to be in the office the exact same number of hours. Everything has to be the same, and that's not good for women." Yeah, I think there are, there are two issues that you bring up here that I want to dig deeper on. The the, the first um, is, of course, just to reference. The, what we've been talking about most of, of the last half an hour, which is um, that these disparities don't equal discrimination. And and if, if we have legislation about equal pay that assumes essentially that disparities do equal discrimination, um, we're just going to have a giant mess on our hands. Right. Uh, because, I mean, Just yeah. to be clear, you know, disparities can sometimes indicate that there's something nefarious going on, right? They can be one piece of evidence in a discrimination case, whether it's a race discrimination case or otherwise, but disparities by themselves are never dispositive. 
Right. Because as we discussed, especially in this, in with regard to this topic, as opposed to race, I think this is actually clearer than race in that regard. Yeah. Um, because men and, they, men and women, as we've been saying, make different decisions. Women tend to value flexibility more. They tend to, for example, go into different fields altogether. Like in the same company, you might have somebody, for example, with a background in communications um, versus somebody with a background. And even in the same job, you come in with different skills, somebody in a background of petroleum engineering, right? right. Um, which tends to be a male-dominated major. Um but so, so first of all, it's a blunt instrument. The idea that disparities automatically mean discrimination is a totally blunt instrument that rolls over the different choices that women make throughout their, their careers and lives. Um, but the second idea that you, you um, kind of brought up there is this idea of the burden of proof. And, and here we're seeing, we're seeing a broader push to get rid of these kinds of standards that make it difficult uh, to sort of get the bad guys, right? And we talked about this the last time um, with Andy McCarthy when we were talking about Bill Cosby getting let out of jail. Um, and with regard to Kavanaugh, um, the Kavanaugh hearings, and, and um, with regard to, for example, Title IX cases uh, on college campuses, it seems like as a society, we're losing tolerance for the, the traditional sort of Anglo-American legal principle that it's better to let a lot of, you know, guilty defendants go free than it is to convict. And I know we're not talking about the criminal cases here in the criminal context here, but we're, we're losing this idea of the presumption of innocence, right? If you flip the burden, it means that when these companies are going to go to court, let's say one of these pieces of proposed legislation passes and we flip the burden, that means companies are going into court essentially in, in, in a kind of opposite way to our traditional legal system, right? They're going into court with the assumption that they have to prove that they are not discriminatory against women with their pay scales. And it seems to me like we're losing, I don't know, culturally the tolerance for just saying, okay, that there are going to be some bad actors and maybe some bad actors are going to slip through, but it's more important that we set our standards generally so that we are not in this case, you know, um, it, it's not a criminal conviction, but like we're not ruling yeah, against the person making the accusation is supposed to yeah. prove their case. That's that's the way our system works. And, you know, frankly, lawyer, I, I used to represent a lot of um, management side in the labor and employment context. They're risk averse when it comes to litigation. Employers are risk averse. They don't want to have to go to court. They're not. They don't want to pay people unequally. Um, you know, they might want to, in terms of money, they might want to pay people less as a group to, to save money in terms of their business plan. But but they're not looking to pay women less than men overall. And 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 they're really, for the most part, trying to comply with these laws because they don't want to have to go to court. Litigation is expensive. It's expensive to hire labor economists to crunch the numbers and explain to a judge, you know, look, when you really account for this, that, and the other thing, these people made the same amount of money. Employers don't want to have to do that. So, you know, the bottom line is that that the law at this point in time, since since the 1960s, has required that employers pay men and women equally. And if you think you're not being paid equally, then you need to advocate for yourself. You either need to, to negotiate a better arrangement with your employer or you need to talk to a lawyer and, and, and get the lawyer to, 
get your company to try to straighten it out. And if they don't, then you can take them to court. But the truth is, you know, as we've seen, the pay gap in most cases is very, very small and um, is not discriminatory in, in, you know, nine cases out of 10, if not more. Yeah, I mean, and I worry about also how we talk about this issue. It's essentially, it's so discouraging, I think, um, to a lot of women in, in multiple ways. One, as we mentioned, it, it implies that there's something wrong with organizing your life, um, with your income as a, a um, coming from your career, not being the first among many, many other considerations in your life. And it, and it, it places sort of um, a stigma on women who might say, that's like, my paycheck is probably my third or fourth or fifth concern after, you know, my family, after, um, you know, where I want to live, after how many hours I want to spend at work, right? Um, so that worries me. And then, and on the flip side, it, it paints this picture, which is just not true, um, that that women as a class uh, are, are like that corporations that the, you know, the employers that were, were your clients, Jennifer, are just looking for ways to underpay and screw women because they are sexist and they would prefer to have men in all of these jobs. And, and I just, I think that's so that's damaging. Yeah, it's not true. And it's such a damaging myth to perpetuate or we're, we're raising a generation of women who are going in with this victimhood mentality. And then, of course, they see sexism everywhere because any unpleasant everywhere. thing that happens to you, which will happen to you, woman, man, it doesn't matter. Like unpleasant things in your career will happen to you. You will work for people that don't like you. You will, you know, have problems with your coworkers. You will be passed over for promotions. That happens to every single person. You won't get the raise or the bonus you wanted. Right. It happens to every single person unless they're very, very lucky in the course of their career. And because we have, you know, these HBO movies about how even these, um, you know, really famous uh, top of their game soccer players are really just suffering under the yoke of sexism and not being paid equally for equal work the message we're sending out there is just so damaging and discouraging. Yeah. I mean, right. The mantra is if it, if it can happen to the sainted Megan Rapinoe, it's definitely happening to you too. Right. I mean, it's just, it's sort of absurd, but you know, you would think that by now people would sort of realize that, that the cry for equal pay is really a rallying cry sort of either to get voters to the polls or as a, it's a negotiating tool um, for for people who are under a collective bargaining agreement, because time and time again, right, we've seen the numbers crunched. And we've also seen there have been some really sort of hilarious pieces done by the Washington Free Beacon where they'll like crunch the numbers of, of the pay in Senator Kamala Harris's office or Hillary Clinton's, you know, first lady office. And, and, and guess who's, you know, guess who has a big pay gap on their staff? The people who are out there tweeting about the U.S., women's soccer team, right? The people are out there tweeting, we need equal pay. And you look at their staff and their staff, the raw numbers show a pay gap. Now, do I think that Hillary Clinton was paying, discriminating against women in the workplace and paying them less? No. Do I think that Kamala Harris was doing that in her Senate office? No. I think that just like every other employer, people are paid based on these different factors and the raw numbers don't tell the whole story. Yeah, you know, that's such a good point. Um, I was thinking about that, but I'm, I'm glad you you brought it up. Like the fact that even these, 
people, these politicians who are out there um, talking about the pay gap, the 79 cents myth, all of these things, um, it is just a political tool. And you see that when you look at their own staffs. And of course, as soon as those stories ran at the free beacon, you get the explanation saying, well, yes, we're going to look at this, but you know, this is not the sole explanation. The women in our office are more junior than the men are for a variety of reasons, blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, that's also the case with all of these corporations and and other employers that they are trying essentially to intimidate with this kind of rhetoric um, and with, as you mentioned, um, proposals to to make them report all of that raw data, which they know is probably going to contain disparities between men and women because men and women make different choices. That's what all of the social science tells us. And, And the crux of this debate I think is is between um, folks like us at IW who who embrace the fact that we live in a free and prosperous enough country that women do have the freedom to make the kind of choices that they want to about balancing their careers and family lives and to make those choices that are different than men. Um, we see that I think as uh, like an enormous blessing, as something to be grateful for. Um, and indeed, actually, one of the the funnier. Um, kind of statistics surrounding this issue is that uh, the more you see actually um, the wealthier a country is and the more quote unquote gender equality you see in kind of a superficial basis, the bigger in some cases the pay gap gets, right? So Sweden and, and some Scandinavian countries, right? So these Scandinavian countries actually have quite big pay gaps between men and women when you consider the raw data. And that's because in, in large part, because they are wealthy enough, they have huge maternity leave policies. Um, they have uh, a lot of benefits for young families and more women are choosing there to stay home. And then the flip side of that is places uh, like Somalia, for example, where you have basically no pay gap, or in some cases, women are making more than men are. Um, and, and that's because they're they're living on a subsistence basis and both men and women have to work, um, you know, from dusk till dawn to, to produce enough uh, to then go ahead and feed their families. Um, that's not something that we should be looking up to, right? The fact that- That's something to aspire to. <laughs> Right. This is not something that that we want to change uh, in our own prosperous and free society when we see men and women making different choices. Ultimately, to me, I look at I look at the the disparities. Actually, at one point a long time ago, I wrote a <laughs> wrote a piece about this um, headline, how I learned how to stop worrying and love the pay gap. Um, little reference there to Dr. Strangelove. But yeah. I, I, I really it sounds ridiculous to say, but I really think we need to embrace this pay gap. It is in fact, all the social science um, is telling us that the pay gap is the result of women making free choices that they think are better for themselves and their families. And that's not a reason um, to to go on the barricades and try to fix as a problem, but instead something to be grateful for. Well, you know, and the other thing that doesn't take into consideration at all is sort of this new economy and the way people work with all sorts of side hustles and freelancing. I mean, really the whole, the whole edifice of, 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 the, of an equal pay analysis is based on the notion that that everybody has a nine to five job that they get up and they go to a workplace whether it's a factory or an office and they they work their 40 hour work week and that's what it is but the reality is you know a lot of people now particularly millennials and younger generations they they don't want to work that way and 
our equal pay laws don't really take that into consideration. They're not looking at what are you making on your side hustle and is the job that's supposedly discriminating against you. Maybe it's giving you the flexibility you want so that you can go out and, you know, make a lot selling your art on the side and, you know, other stuff. So, so there's, you know, there's that whole analysis too, but I did want to raise one thing, you know, before we, we end up wrapping up is another way that you know that this soccer case is really political um, is that the real disparity in money has nothing to do with the U.S. Soccer Federation. It has to do with, with the FIFA World Cup prize money. And there is a big disparity there between the prize money for the women and the prize money for the men. And you don't hear Megan Rapinoe complaining about that. I mean, maybe she does tangentially, but her beef is with the U.S. Soccer Federation. Why? I mean, the U.S. Soccer Federation has offered to lock arms with these women and to go to the FIFA World Cup and demand bigger prize money for, for the women. They're on their side. They want to be their advocates. But these women don't want to join forces with them to advocate for equal prize money because they've got this other thing going on, this publicity stunt where, you know, U.S. Soccer Federation has to be the has to be the bad guy. Right. And, and um, of course, a major reason for that disparity um, at the, the, the World Cup level is the differing. And, and maybe that is going to change going forward. Maybe there is more interest in women's soccer. But in the past, um, the men's World Cup has drawn many, many more viewers and has generated a lot more revenue. And therefore, there is more of that revenue available um, as a, a prize. Um, but maybe that'll change going forward. Maybe it won't. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I still wouldn't call that discrimination. It's, it's the reality that, um, another, another topic for another day, that the fact that men and women have different physical abilities. And in fact, even though the men's soccer team may not be as relatively good, um, to other men's soccer teams around the world as the, the, the women's are, um, the women are the, if, if there was a matchup between the men's and women's soccer team, everyone knows how that would go. And in fact, this team lost a scrimmage to, I believe it was the boys under 15 division. So there are major differences in male and female athletic ability, which is not at all take away from the fact that these women were at one point the best in the world and apparently now the third best. And on that note, we'll dig in. And <laughs> Um, well, I think we're going to wrap up here, uh, but thank you so much for joining us at the bar. We are here every two weeks. Um, I'm Inez Stepin with the Independent Women Forum. And I'm Jennifer Braceres with Independent Women's Law Center. Um, and join us next week for more issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to find our, our <laughs> there we go, exit mu music. See you next